written in the words of the book right there. I said, I don't know. Now, by the end of this book, I would make the decision to break up with a girl and never get back together with her, which was probably pretty shocking. Uh, I would make the decision to break up with a girl who was totally supportive of my Christian faith. She called herself an agnostic. If you don't know what that is, an agnostic is someone that believes in a higher power, but they do not believe in a God. We believe in a God, a a, a deity, a, a someone that you can frame it that way, I guess. That's what she believed in. And she was, all, she was all for me going to youth group and going to church and all those things. She actually would get mad at me if I would text her during youth group. So, like I said, she was about it. But my gaze was, was taken off of her and put on, or taken off of God and put onto her. I'd made the decision before we started this book that I was going to stop going to church. I was going to stop playing the drums in the youth band. I was going to stop going to small group and Sunday church and all those things. And I was going to do whatever I wanted. And then we read that book. And Dan thought that no one liked it. It turns out it worked out really well. Um, So, a little bit about me. I have five sisters. Yes, count them five. One, two, three, four, five. I have three older stepsisters and two younger half-sisters. I love sports, and I do mean all sports. Um, Rugby is better than football. We can argue about that later, but that is a firm, firm conviction that I have. I am married to my lovely wife of almost three years. It'll be three years next month, which is kind of crazy within itself. Her name is Maggie, and we actually met for the first time ever at the Chick-fil-A at Amelia Island, shockingly enough, when we were juniors in high school. Uh, No, we did not date in high school. That would not have gone well for me. Um, And we got to know each other at UNF. We have a dog. We have no kids. And yes, my dog is better than your dog. Maggie and I are considering moving overseas to Austria, not Australia, Austria, and I bet only probably, how many of you are homeschooled? Yeah, y'all could probably get it on the map. <laughs> I couldn't have got it on the map in public school, so just keep, it, keep that a buck. Uh, graduated from Yulee in 2014, like you said, graduated from UNF in 2018 with two bachelor's degrees, one in finance, one in financial services. Nope, don't use those professionally, probably never will, it's fine. Uh, and I work now for an international, interdenominational Christian missions organization called The Navigators. That sounded really fancy, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I lead Bible studies with a bunch of the youth that graduated that you know, like Noah Walsh and Brooks Vanderhoff and Seamus Rooney. Guys, when you see Seamus, next time you see Seamus, just call him legs. Just, just do it. <laughs> um, I'll be safe. It's fine. Now, like I said, I'm, I'm telling you my story. So, before Christ... That book is all about being a fan versus a follower. Fan knows a lot about the thing, right? How many of you know about Trevor Lawrence? Raise your hands. Woo! Yeah, Blondie, great. How many of you know Trevor Lawrence? Yeah, I didn't think so. Um, in comparison to how many of you know the name Tyler Shatley? Anybody by magical chance know that name? No, nope, didn't think so. He is now the starting center for the Jacksonville Jaguars as of last week because Brandon Linder got hurt. He's one of my good friends. He's a great guy. He's also a giant of a human being. Um, Fan versus follower. I know about Trevor. I've never met Trevor. I know about Tyler, but I also know Tyler. And so in my life before Christ, really coming to know Christ, I knew all the answers. I was the Jesus kid. People would apologize for cussing in front of me. And I would look at them and I would say, 
Not only do you not need to apologize for cussing in front of me, my mother would single-handedly drink all five of you under the table. So there you go. This book is really about decision versus commitment. It's easy to say, yeah, I follow Christ. But what, what does that actually cost you? What is the commitment of saying those words? And trust me, saying those words and meaning those words and making that commitment will cost you something. So I work to keep my language to a minimum. Sports fields, video games, church, kind of a given. I didn't have sex before I was married. I was respectful to adults. I worked a job. Any of you guys work at Chick-fil-A to Million Island now? Tell Miss Lita, Key says, what's up? I kept great grades. I was on varsity sports teams year-round, captain two of them my senior year. I was the band kid from my freshman year to my junior year. I was a drumline captain my junior year. And so the, all of that was on the outside. And in reality, I was so angry all the time. At what? Then, back then, I, I couldn't tell you. It really came to a, a culmination probably about the middle to the end of my junior year. And I would point at my mom. So I was raised by my grandparents. I've never met my dad. Don't know who he is. My mom would stand on this, sta- on this stage and tell you that she's a drug addict to this day. But she chooses every day not to engage with her desires. And so the woman that was supposed to love me the most, the easiest, the best, she didn't. And I felt abandoned. How come my family never came to any of the athletic events that I was in? They had all year to make it to at least one. But they never did. Also, for my athletes here, uh, do not make athletics your identity. One day you will have to stop. I haven't hit that point yet either. But one day you will have to stop. That's why I'm limping. I have a hurt foot from playing. So there you go. Um, I found so much of my value in excelling in sports. Track, soccer, wrestling for one year. Until my senior year of high school, I finally realized, one, I'm not going to go play college sports. I'm not going to make millions of dollars playing this game. And so your thinking has to change. What's going to drive you when that is no longer achievable? Or so you think. I play for the king. I don't play for glory. That's something that I say to myself before I step on any rugby field of a, yes, I still play rugby, before any rugby game that I play, before any uh, spike ball game that I play where I beat Aaron Cox every single time. <laughs> because I have to remember that my actions speak. People are watching. Some people are waiting for me to fail. So, that's before Christ. And this is just... I label this part the sad parts, but it's just everyone has a story. I'm very, like I said, mom was a drug addict, never met my dad, raised my grandparents, and I'm very thankful for that. My grandparents are great. Uh, that relationship is actually getting much better now between my family, me, and my grandparents. Um, while I love my grandfather very much and I'm thankful for how he provided for me, That's what the relationship was when I was here, when I was a youth. 
He was a provider. He wasn't a father. There's a difference. He's a high-functioning alcoholic, so I was never abused or anything like that, but he would just get home, make a drink, sit on the back porch, go change, shower, make another drink, and then just drink until he passed out. That was the, that was the vision of a, a father that I had in the home. Now, he did teach me something. He did teach me how to work, and that, that is a valuable skill that I thank him for to this day. Colossians 3.23 says, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. And I can remember being a senior in high school, and he's a, he's a welder slash pipe fitter, and ultimately something went wrong at the job site, and they had to work an 18-hour day uh, trying to get this pipe refixed. He got home at about 1 a.m., had a drink, went to sleep, was up at 7, and back at the shipyard at 8, even though he didn't have to go back until 10. And he's like, I have to do this. We have to finish this job. That, so he, he was a man that is a man that works very hard. But he, he himself really never had a father. So how can you expect to, for that to be passed on or for him to do something that was never pictured for him? Does that make sense? So as I reflect back on my childhood, it was definitely different than most. And I had to deal with more than what a lot of my friends had to deal with. But count your blessings. I found something good from being raised. I found several things from being raised by my grandparents. If you were to ask my sister Madison, who's 21, she would say, I was raised in a drug house. I don't have to say that. That's not true of me, thankfully. My family has no sense of unity. There are four sisters that everyone's kind of stems from, and I've never been at a family gathering this side of probably the age of seven where all of the family has been together or the four sisters have even all been in attendance because they're always fighting. I'm also one of probably seven believers in my family, so that gives you a little bit more context. And what's crazy is, is like some people have that like random aunt that lives in like South Dakota. No, they all live in like in South Georgia and Northeast Florida. So it's not like, you know, we got to buy a plane ticket. No, you got to put gas in the car and drive. And then probably the most damaging thing of all was around the age of 12, I was exposed to pornography. And by the age of 15, I was addicted to pornography. And that would continue until I was 21. I'm 25 now. And I haven't watched porn since August of 2018, which is amazing to be able to say. And that, again, goes back to the woman that was supposed to love me the most and the easiest didn't. And so I found that elsewhere. Now we got some verses on the screen. And uh, Deuteronomy 32, verses 4 to 12. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. But like I said, they'll also be behind me. The rock, starting in verse 4, the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness without, and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? 
Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him, this is key, he found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. I remember my sophomore year of college, sophomore, junior year of college, one of the two, I was just reading through my Bible for the, probably the first time ever, just getting breadth, breadth reading. So that's just like you're just reading it, not depth reading. There's a difference. And I started crying when I read that. Mainly because of verse 6. It says, Is not he your father who created you, who made you, and established you? So like I said, my grandpa was a great provider, but he wasn't a father. And in that moment, sitting in a Starbucks on UNF campus, I just started crying because for the first time I felt like I had a dad but it wasn't a human that had great father figures but feeling the the warmth of a father's hug a true father's hug I think was reserved in that moment right there sitting in Starbucks now I will say this I'm not a big crier so uh, the fact that I cried you guys may not know that about me that's fine is significant and I've never cried in another quiet time ever again. So don't think that I'm just like bawling every time I open my Bible. But if you do that, more power to you. That's fine. In that moment, I just realized, man, God loves me. And that was after I would say that I developed a relationship with Jesus. And that came, I mean, I, like I said, I was the Jesus kid. I went to church camp every year from the age of six until I graduated from high school. So, like, I was in this thing, all right? But when I got to college, I quickly realized that the guys that were around me that I was with in the Navigators, so I now I work for this organization in the Navigators, they had something else. Yeah, they had the Bible knowledge, cool, whatever. Anybody can rogue memorize things. But they had a connection with Jesus that I just didn't have. It wasn't there. The desire wasn't there. And so probably January of 2015 is when I would say that I accepted Jesus and began a relationship with him. A lot of people would have seen my life up through that and would have disagreed, and that's fine. Uh, but I knew what was going on in here and what was true. And I realized how much the Father loved me and also just how much he had pursued me through my life. And you can see that in verse 12. Or actually verse 11, or actually verse 10 through 12. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing him on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. And so when I think about my life, I don't get sad. Because then I think about Acts 9. So if you want to flip there, you can flip there. 
Acts 9, if you're familiar with your Bibles, is where we get this, 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 this modern-day, what would be equivalent modern-day terrorist, steps onto the scene, and Jesus meets him. And he's changed forever. Acts 9, verses 13 to 16, says, But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Paul had already been tormenting tormenting, uh, Christians. He's responsible for the stoning of Stephen. And And here where he is, where Ananias is now, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias is ultimately saying, well, stay. Okay, good. Ananias is ultimately saying this. Whoa, 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 whoa. That guy beat up my friends, and now you want me to go up to this guy, and he's allowed to beat me up. I don't really think that I want to do that. And God being God says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For, this is the key verse, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So this is Saul becoming Paul, right? Who is Paul? Paul is the guy that wrote most of the New Testament. He's got great faith. So much faith, like I said, he wrote most of the New Testament. And yet, do you know the sufferings that he went through? Anyone? Do you know how many times he was beaten? 40 lashes minus one. How many times he was beaten with rods? How many times he was stoned, shipwrecked, starving? Cool, we're going to read about it. 2 Corinthians 11, we get a list. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring? We're in verses 21 and 28, by the way. Are they offspring of Abraham? That's a big one. I don't have time to go there, but that's a big one. So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Now, why is it less one? Because if you got 40, you were considered dead, and they couldn't do it again. So they were like, ah, we'll get you as close as possible, and then we're going to do it again. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Now, if you're not familiar with stoning, they throw rocks at you until you are dead. That is the point. They are trying to kill you. Paul gets stoned. They think he's dead, and then he gets up, and he walks right back into the city. The man is insane. I don't understand. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Those would be the Israelites. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So we learned two things there. From the time that he became a Christian until he died, not fun at all. Zero percent, zero, five uh, percent fun. I'll give him that. And not only is there a physical toll on him, what's the last verse say? And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. There's a mental toll. That's how much he suffered. But who did he suffer 
for is what matters. Was Paul whipped 40 lashes, 40 lashes minus one because he stole some random donkey? No, he, did, he, was, he was whipped like that because he came with a message. A message that I believe to this day, nearly 2,000 years later, that I hope that you will believe, but I hope that you will understand that this ain't cotton candy and rainbows. 2 Timothy 3.12 specifically speaks against that. Does anyone have that memorized? If you don't, you should memorize it. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise. That's in the last book that Paul writes before he's beheaded for his faith. God wasn't kidding when he said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to be beaten. I'm not saying you're going to be shipwrecked. I'm not saying any of those things. And I don't wish any of those things upon you. But we have a story and it has value. And my story, my childhood has only prepared me to be able to engage with people about Jesus even more. Because I don't have, you know, a lot of people would say, well, this is true. College kids and a lot of adults that I interact with that aren't believers have the perception that people that are Christians in today's day and age were born in it. And they just grew up believing it and they have no factual basis for anything and they've never gone through a hard thing in their entire lives. And I think every one of us in this room can disagree with that. But that's the perception. And so when I tell them these things, they get kind of shocked. And when I tell them that I'm a Christian in the first place and I have dreads, they're also kind of like, what? You, that doesn't make sense. That's besides the point. Um, but in reference to 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They were willing to torture our leader. Why would they also not be willing to torture his followers? And I'm not even going to say they. I'm going to say Satan. Satan tempted Jesus three times in the wilderness. And then Peter, when, Satan, when, when Jesus professes that he's going to die, and, and then Peter rebukes him, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. If you're doing well, if you're telling people about your faith, if you're living out your faith, why would Satan not come for you? When you look at old battle strategies between, like, you know, the American Revolution, American Revolution and, and Native Americans of that day and age, when they realized that the generals were on horses and those were the people that mattered and the people that were in front of them, guess where they started shooting their arrows? At the generals. Because if you take out the leaders, these people don't know what to do and they're much easier to take out themselves. So don't expect niceties. I don't expect niceties. Today I had a conversation with a random office depot worker about his faith or, or about my faith. And I was like, hey, if you want to read the Bible, like here's my phone number. We'd love to talk to you. That's a great opportunity. And I hope that he is a seed planted among the good soil and not a seed thrown along the path. But if I would have gotten in a car crash or like blown out a tire or something on the way home, I would have been like, well, mm-hmm, that's real funny, Satan. Nah. I did legitimately did think about that, and I was thankful that that didn't happen, okay? And then James 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
some of the temptations that I've faced in my life. Um, when I worked at Buffalo Wild Wings as a server in college, I was a sophomore and junior year of college. There was a server, a girl who served there with me and David Shepard. Anybody know that name? <clears throat> That's my best friend. And so he can attest to this. But this might be a little awkward for you to ask him. There was a woman who worked there, and she would start almost every shift, almost every shift, when I would come in, and she'd already be there. She would just walk up to me, and she would say one simple, she'd ask me one simple question. She would say, Keith, when are you going to have sex with me? Straight up. Many times. That was the temptation that's just being thrown at me. Or the familial temptation of, of my... Uh, my mom, she said, when she found out that I, me and Maggie weren't having sex before we got married, she said, I could never buy a car without testing it out first. So my family didn't approve. My first ever rugby practice at UNF, uh, there's a weird tradition that you have to do, but ultimately they found out that I was a virgin, and they were like, oh, we'll change that. It's, all, it's, it's just so, there's so much pressure all the time. All the time. When I was in high school, it was simple because I just came to church and played FIFA and played more FIFA. Um, but when I got to college, that's where the temptations became real and, were, and, and more difficult. And part of my testimony is, is saying no to those things, yes. But Dan told me that you guys talked about Joshua, or Joshua. Uh, Joshua actually spoke about Daniel 1, which is one of my most favorite chapters in the entire Bible. He talked about it at uh, Disciple Now. If you don't remember, just go back and read it. But Daniel is a youth, which means he's probably between the age of 16 and 18, and he says no. He's resolved because he has a relationship with God, and that's what's important to him. And so I go from being the Jesus kid in high school to being the Jesus kid in college and with all that, that childhood things that have happening. And now I work as a, quote, professional Christian. That's my job. But I don't do that. Well, I do that one. Yes, my job is fun. It is nice. Shout out to Dan. He knows what I'm talking about. Because we get to hang out with you guys. We get to have, make impact in people's lives through our story. And so what's the secret to perseverance? You can flip the Philippians 4 if you'd like. It's not on the screen. Actually, is it? Is it on the screen? No. Verses 10 to 13. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. That is Paul speaking to the church in Philippi. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Pause. Who knows the next verse? You know it? Say it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's give that man a round of applause. Yeah, that's the secret. Pretty crazy, right? 
So let's put that in 21st century language. What is the secret? The secret is to depend on the Lord. The secret is to engage with the community around you. Hardship is part of a fallen, a part of this fallen world. So do not be shocked, like James says, when the uh, when they come upon us, when the hardships come upon us. <clears throat> God is not against you. He is not and was not against me in what happened to me as a child. I don't hold it against him. I see it as refining fire for how for the present day to be able to stand up here and talk to you guys. For the future, if we move to Austria, if we stay here. The Lord's going to use my story, whether it's to save one, whether it's to save a million. I don't know, but one is worth it. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15.10. First half of that has become a part of, of how I think about myself. But by the grace of God, not by my own doing, or my mom's failures, or my dad's failures, or my grandpa's failures, or my grandma's failures, or any other person's failures. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that's something to remember. When I think about trials, I see them for what they are. They're an opportunity. Now, I don't disregard the probably guaranteed emotional impact that, I will sh- that I'm sure will arise from this difficulty. As we see, Paul was worried about his anxiety. But I know that the Lord will be walking with me through this. I also know that as someone who is fighting diligently for a relationship with Christ, that Satan is going to try to take me out. And why would he not? I'm, not, I'm, I'm trying to win a war. In Galatians 5, you can look at that. There is a battle of the flesh and a battle of the spirit. So <clears throat> now I have a relationship with Christ. Now what's different? Have you guys been magically made perfect? Didn't think so. Has my anger completely ceased? No. Is my anger less? Yes. Is it more controlled? For sure. Athletic events, you're not going to catch me getting angry. Unless you're the random frat guy that throws my friend into a bleacher stand during an intramural soccer game. Yes, then you might find me angry. And then I made him look really stupid. It was awesome. Has my lust, has my desire, or has, yeah, has my lustful eyes, have those been perfected? No. Is my patience perfect? Heck no. But what is different? My eternity is definitely different. I don't look forward to walking down the streets of gold or hanging out in some big house. That's not the point of going to heaven. I look forward to being with Jesus for forever. I don't care if it's in a desert. I don't care if it's on a stage. I don't care if it's in a box. I don't know. Whatever you want to imagine. It doesn't have to be picture perfect, material, blah, blah, blah. I just look forward to being with him for forever. You're welcome to come. People often ask me and Maggie, they're like, aren't you guys excited to spend eternity forever? And I'm like, bro, when we die, I'm looking at that dude. I'm not looking at her. I got, I got 60 years, and then I'm looking, at, I'm looking at her or him. Now, he has covered me from my sin, but he has not covered me to sin. And you can look at that in Romans 6. My view of my purpose on this planet is different. 
A lot of our friends that we have that don't know the Lord, their purpose is simple. Make money, buy a house, rent it out. Make money, buy a house, rent it out. That's all they care about. They, make, they care about making money and hanging out on the weekends. That's what they care about. Now, I will say, the want and desire to be successful is not a bad thing. I want to see the world. So I budget my money so that I can see the world. But I do not budget my money in a way that I'm going on a worldwide vacation every single, like, you know, three or four times a year. We give money away significantly more than what we save for travel. Because making an investment into the kingdom through missionaries and churches that we partner with, me and Maggie, is more important than seeing some random old church in France. So let me ask you, what does following Jesus cost you? What does following Jesus cost you? And if following Jesus costs you everything, would it still be worth it? I say that it is. But that's because I have a relationship with Jesus and you yourself had to figure out whether or not it is worth it to you and whether or not you want to have that relationship with Jesus. I have two stats and then I'm just going to close or I'm going to pray for us. And these break my heart. Because these are my friends. I've seen, I've seen these stats happen this side of college. Two out of five. Two out of five. Two. Those are the amount of young adults who were raised Christian and they are simply habitual churchgoers. That just means you show up to this building, you listen to a dude talk at you for 40 minutes, you sing a couple songs, maybe, you probably just listen and just stand there, and then you leave. That's it. That's what that means. 64% just drop out and they don't go to church anymore. Now, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that if we don't have churches, we don't have this book. So if you ever think, you're like, ah, oh, I don't need to go to church. Like, my faith is my faith. The book of Colossians is written to who? The church in Colossae. The book of First and Second Corinthians is written to who? The church in Corinth. The book of Galatians is written to who? The church in Galatia, which is actually a region, not a town, but that's besides the point. You need the church. And you need Jesus. He's made all the difference in my life, so much so that I talked to random office depot workers about it. He kind of brought it up, so that's cheating, but it's fine. Worked in my favor. So I just pray that you'll take your faith seriously. Come and pray for us. God, I thank you for this opportunity just to come and share about how you've impacted me. Through this church, through the navigators. Lord, I'm, I'm so thankful that you brought me to yourself. And God, I pray over each one of these students. Or that they would make the decision for themselves to be a follower, to be committed to you above all else. And I think about, think about Galatians 1.10, am I, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If 
If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. God, I pray that they are a servant of you and that they are seeking the approval that you would have of them, not of what this world would have of them, not what their friends have of them or their teachers. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.